My name's Skyler. I'm one of the guys on the college staff team. Um, real quick, can we just give it up for Jesus for a minute, that he's saving people in the Middle East that nobody knows. I mean, praise him for that. Incredible. He's planting churches. I mean, it's crazy that Jesus is reaching people literally on the other side of the world that it's illegal to convert there. So we're so excited about that. Thanks, Anthony, for your heart there. Um, like I said, my name's Skylar. Super excited to be here. If you've been here the last couple weeks, we've been going through the book of Ruth. We just finished that, and we're starting a new sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. So if you flip with me with, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to have one. On the bookshelf outside the sanctuary, there's a white bookshelf with blue Bibles. They're free. You can feel free to grab one. We would love everyone to have a Bible. While you're flipping there, I'm going to tell you guys a little story about my wife and kind of her family. Um, when she was about eight years old, her older brother, who was about 15 at the time, had uh, some heart problems. Uh, the nurse found, or found a heart murmur, and they went and took him in, and he had this rare condition that I can't pronounce, but basically what it meant is that when he was exercising, there was a chance that he could have a heart attack and die. It's really serious. So the, the treatment for it is he had to have open heart surgery. And the weeks leading up to that, my understanding, I didn't know my wife at the time, was that it was some of the most stressful weeks of their lives. My father-in-law didn't eat or sleep for weeks. My wife can remember numerous times just crying out that she, would, that she hoped her brother would be okay. And the reason was because this surgery was life or death. It was for his good, obviously. He needed it. It was for his good, but the surgery that would happen was the, the gravity of it was life or death. By the grace of God, he's fine. The surgery was a success. He's one of my dear friends, and he's still with us, which is amazing. But the surgery itself was so serious because it was life or death. What we're starting is a message, a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' longest recorded sermon in the Bible. But I also believe it's one of Jesus' most misunderstood messages. There was a French philosopher and renowned atheist. His name was Albert Camus. It was in the 20th century. And he said about the Sermon on the Mount that it was the greatest ethical speech ever to be spoken. That every ethics writing leading up to that or after that in all of human history was a mere footnote of the Sermon on the Mount. Camus never put two and two together that the reason why Jesus understood the mind and human behavior so well was because he's God and created the mind, but that's not the point. The point is, is that all that we're about to go through as a church? Are we about to go through an ethical speech, a list of the do's and don'ts of how to be a good person, or is it something more? I think what we'll find over the next months of this series is that the Sermon on the Mount is not an ethical speech, but a surgery. It's not just a statement for good people, it's a scalpel. And as the disciples and the crowds went up on the mountain to listen to Jesus, they may as well have been going on the operating table. The same operating table that my prayer is that we as a church would be placed on over the next couple months as we go through this text. As the words that are Jesus's sword would pierce our souls to realize, man, where do I need to pursue him more? What is he doing in my life? And how do I continue to pursue him? And so what we're going to do is I'm going to pray, and I'd love for you guys to pray with me that Jesus would work on our hearts over the next couple of months, that he'd work on our hearts this morning, and that Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount would change us, change our hearts, and continue to grow us to look more like him. Let's pray. Jesus, 
We are so grateful that you actually gave us your words. It is an amazing thing that 2,000 years later, a speech could still be recorded and read about and worshipped, and the only one who we would do that for is you. And so would your words pierce us? Would you place us on the operating table? A life or death surgery. The most important things that we'll ever know are in this sermon. Thank you for giving them to us, Jesus. Would we worship you this morning? And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So before I get into the actual text, we're going to be in verses 1 through 12. Before I get into that, it would be very helpful for the rest of our series if we actually take some time to understand the context of the Sermon on the Mount, its intent, um, when it happened, things like that. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was preached by him in his second year of ministry. So Jesus' ministry lasted three years. His third year was when he was crucified on the cross. The Sermon on the Mount took place in the middle of his ministry, his second year. But in the book of Matthew, it's in chapter 5. Chapter 5 through 7. And there's 28 chapters in the book of Matthew. So something that happened in the middle of Jesus' life is recorded in Matthew in the first quarter of the book, which tells us that Matthew did not care about the chronological order of Jesus' ministry. But he did have another intent. Look with me in chapter 4, verse 23. It says, And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. So that's what it says he was doing. Healing every disease and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now go to chapter 9 in the book of Matthew. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. Copied and pasted. Same thing. Exact same phrase. So, we've got a new theological term here, the Bible sandwich. The exact same phrases. Chapter 4, chapter 9. And what they're telling us is that Jesus did two things. Proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, healed every disease. Chapters 8 and 9 tell us about Jesus healing every disease. Chapters 5 and 7 are the Sermon on the Mount which tells us that Matthew placed it here because the point of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus teaching us, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is ushering to earth, the kingdom of heaven that will be made new when he makes the new, king, the new heavens and the new earth in the final days. And what he's telling us in the Sermon on the Mount, because it can look like a, thing, a to-do list to be good people. As we read this, this is exactly what it can look like, a to-do list. But what he's actually telling us is who will be in the kingdom of heaven and what will they look like now? He's not worried about us adding things so that we can actually become part of the kingdom of heaven. He's like, if you're a citizen of heaven, your life will look differently. Here's how. So that's the lens that we go into the Sermon on the Mount with, understanding it's about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The second thing is that when we go through the Sermon on the Mount, I'd like for us to have three things in the back of our minds that we're kind of constantly running through this grid, three applications. One of them would be encouragement, that as we look at the Beatitudes and see these things in our lives, we would be encouraged that Jesus, by his grace, is actually producing those things in our hearts. That's amazing. We were talking about that in our sermon prep and how people were just like, man, Jesus is, in a small way, Jesus is doing these things I'm excited about it. It was encouraging. Second thing would be that we would get placed on the operating table and let the words of Jesus pierce our hearts to understand, man, I'm just not there right now, and I want to pursue him more in this way. 
pray there will be things that stick out and convict us of like, man, this is how I can walk in holiness more. Third thing is that there will be people in this room who hear these and realize that the things in this text do not describe us at all. And the problem with that then is that we need to understand that that means that if that's what the citizen of kingdom of the kingdom of heaven looks like, that I might not be there. And the answer is always repentance. Repent, turn to Jesus, be saved. So we're looking at encouragement, holiness, repentance. That's kind of what we're gritting everything through. With that in mind, we're going to move on to our actual text, now that you guys kind of understand the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in Matthew 5, chapters 1, or verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and he, when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I'm not a master of observation, but there is one word that's used like ten times. Blessed. So it's obviously important. So what does it mean? We've got a, we've got a definition in our world of what it means. We see hashtag blessed on social media all the time. Here's a couple examples from my life. Um, blessed. I've got an amazing wife who I love. I love being married to her. She's incredibly joyful. So fun. Hashtag blessed. It's amazing. We have a corgi. His name is Beans. He's the cutest animal in existence. He's the City Light U mascot. And I have yet I have yet to preach a sermon since I've had him where I didn't use him as an illustration. Hashtag blessed. It's amazing. And we do it all the time. I just got a house. I just got a car. Tony's Pizza is four for eight bucks at Hy-Vee. Hashtag blessed. We see it all the time. But the problem is, what if, what if Jesus wouldn't describe any of those things as blessed? And what we're going to see in this text is that blessedness in the kingdom is the complete opposite of blessedness in the world. Blessedness in the kingdom is the complete opposite of blessedness in the world. In the original language, blessed here literally just means happy. But it's deeper than that. It's not just happy, it's fortunate. But it's different than fortune that we understand. It's not getting more things, more power, more money, whatever it is. It's kingdom fortune, which means it actually has to do with our souls. A pastor and theologian put it so well that I think it just describes so... He called it blessing here in the Beatitudes, approval of God. That when we see blessed, it's the approval of God, the smile of God on our lives. The things that our souls need more than anything else is the approval of God. So that's what we're seeing when we see blessed. For the sake of time, we can't dive into every single one of these Beatitudes. I know how much you guys would love to and just sit here for like three or four hours and get it, but we're not going to. We're literally going to look at two of them, and then we'll breeze through the rest, and we're breaking it up into two groups. One of them is blessed before God and blessed before man. So we're seeing a heart posture of blessing towards God, and then a heart posture of blessing towards man. With that, we'll dive into our first four Beatitudes, blessed before God. 
One side note, too, that's important is when it says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or for they shall receive mercy, in the original language, it's theirs alone. Like, it's exclusive. Like, this is important because it's like, theirs alone, and if you're not there, then, then no kingdom of heaven. So that's important to remember as well. First one on the list, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's why we're spending time on this, because it says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're literally talking about entry to the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which means not poor in spirit, yours is not the kingdom of heaven. So we have to know, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Let's talk about it. To be poor, college students, what does it mean to be poor? Y'all know. You have nothing. That's what it means to be poor. Nothing. Complete bankruptcy, poverty, absolutely nothing. But it's not just financial poverty, it's spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So in your soul, I have nothing good or of value. Not that our souls don't have value, but what our souls have to offer God is of no value to him. What our souls have deep inside to give him and say, approve this, is of no good and of nothing of value to him. And once the poor, in, that's what it means to be poor in spirit, is to come to God understanding and acknowledging and believing that I have nothing good to offer him. And so my question for us as a church is, why did God save you? Not, not how did God save you. Jesus came and died so that we could be made free. But why did God save you? Think about it for a minute. Why did God save you? If the answer was anything besides pure grace, undeserved, I have no idea, then we might not understand what it means to be poor in spirit. And I'm not asking, do we feel it all the time? But have we ever, have we ever felt it? Have we ever been poor in spirit to the point of breaking, I have nothing to offer? And I'm not asking, did we pray a prayer once? Did we raise our hands once? Did we sign a card once? Did we walk down the aisle once? Do we get baptized? Do we go through confirmation? Do we go to church regularly? Do we read our Bible? I'm not asking any of that, but in our soul, in our deepest desire, have we been poor in spirit? Because if the answer is no, then look at the beatitude, then theirs is not the kingdom of heaven. And this, trust me, I wasn't particularly excited to preach on this message. I didn't get this text and like go crazy for it. But I would much rather have every person deal with this now then have to deal with it when Jesus says at the end of the days, I did not know you. Would we work this out now? I want us to take a minute, though, and to notice the beauty of the gospel. The entry point to the kingdom of heaven is to be poor. College students, again, you ever had anything where the entry level was just to be poor, just to have nothing? Going to college, got to fill out an application, got to pay for college, Got to have an application fee, whatever it is, working. I need to have the qualifications, the work experience. I have to know the right people. My wife and I got a fish, the lowest commitment of a pet ever. I don't even know if it's alive, literally right now. <laughs> and, and for a fish, basic requirements, you still have to have a tank, water, and food, and you got a fish. But the kingdom of God, the greatest thing we could ever have, the entry level requirement is to have nothing, which means it doesn't matter your race, 
your background, where you've been, or what you've done, the entry to the kingdom of heaven is nothing, which is the easiest thing that will ever happen. But it's also the hardest thing we'll ever do because it means that you have to drop everything else. Here's an illustration to show that. Does anyone know how you trap a monkey? Yeah, I said it. Trap a monkey. We've got one dude shaking his head. Wow. All right. Cool. Not how you kill a monkey. Dead. Trap a monkey. Like live trap for a zoo. Monkey. This is what you do. This is legit. I'm not making this up. You take like a bottle with a bottleneck and you put like a melon in it. The food of some sort, whatever monkeys eat. And the monkey will walk up to the bottle, put his hand in it, grab the melon, and then he can't get his hand out of the bottle. Stupid monkey. Drop the melon. But here's what they found. The monkey won't drop the melon. Trappers will walk up to the monkey, and he's like losing his mind, but he won't drop the melon. And so all they have to do is just take the monkey to his own demise, because he won't drop the melon. And we, we laugh because it's like, drop the melon, monkey goes free. Drop the melon, monkey goes free. It's so easy. But here's the problem, church, is we have people all over the world that will die and not enter the kingdom of heaven because they won't drop the proverbial melon. There's things in our lives that we have to let go of to enter the kingdom of heaven. Your family, your goodness, things that we think that are more fun without God, the sins that we love. Resource. Whatever it is, there's things that we hold on to that unless they're dropped, the eternal wrath of God pouring in, and we're the monkey freaking out, and all that we have to do is drop everything. Because church, when our hands are completely empty, the only thing we can cling to is the cross of Jesus Christ. And then theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first step to enter the kingdom of heaven is to get down off of every other step that we're on and bow at the feet of the cross. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But it's not just the entry level. It's also the start of something beautiful, this like progression that we see in the Beatitudes. After you meditate on your bankruptcy for a while, um, obviously the next response is to mourn, is to be, set, to be broken about it. So we see the next one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. A great illustration of this in the Bible is the prophet Isaiah, who sees a vision where he sees God. He sees how good God is and how respectfully bad he is. And he says, woe is me, I am undone. He sees his bankruptcy and says, I have nothing good in me. And he mourns. And what does God do after that? He commands one of the seraphim, these creepy like monster things from heaven, to take a white hot coal and press it against his lips. And he says, your sins are atoned for, a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. But God provides comfort in Isaiah's mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. City that, are we a church that mourns over our bankruptcy? That mourning should lead to a spirit of meekness. Blessed are, those, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is not just gentleness. It's essentially power under control. So like, think of a Roman war horse who has all the power in the world, but under the submission of the army. Think about our king of meekness himself, Jesus, who had the power to split atoms apart by snapping his fingers, and yet he stood and took a beating after beating and was pierced and murdered so that we could be made sons of God, so that we could inherit the earth. And after he resurrected, he claimed the earth for himself. He gave up everything. So City Light, are we a church 
that just tries to use our power and privilege to get whatever we want to inherit the earth, or do we give up our power so that others can be made strong? That inevitably will lead to a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This isn't like American, like Lincoln, Nebraska, hunger, like I haven't eaten in 12 minutes, I'm going to smash another cosmic brownie. Not what's going on here. What this is, this is literally like starvation. There was, a, there was a missionary in the Great Awakening named David Brainerd who wrote journals about his life, and he wrote that he was so hungry for God that he was queasy. That's what hunger and thirst for righteousness is, that there's, we're starved for him. All that we want is him, more of him, his presence, his spirit, his word. We want more of it, and citizens of the kingdom of heaven will want that, growing over time, yes. It's not always there. That's not what we're saying, and that's not what Jesus is saying, but it will grow, that hunger. And what does it say? You'll be satisfied. Growing in hunger, growing in satisfaction, blessed before God. That's what it means to be blessed. Now, I want to make two observations before we continue on with the rest of the Beatitudes, but they apply to all the Beatitudes. And that's that these are completely counterintuitive and countercultural. Counterintuitive. What if you were scrolling through Twitter, or if you're over 40, Facebook, and, and you saw I'm sorry, and, and, you saw, and you saw these posts. Man, I just spent an hour meditating on my bankruptcy before the Father. Hashtag blessed. I am mourning right now. Hashtag blessed. My soul is starving. Hashtag blessed. It doesn't make any sense. And for me, I literally get uncomfortable asking us if we're a church that mourns because my flesh and my mind doesn't understand why that's a good thing. But the reason why it's a good thing is because it's a kingdom blessing. And kingdom blessings are different than, kingdom, than worldly blessings because Jesus is the king of the kingdom which means he blesses our soul. Think about this. What is the one thing that we, the three things that we strive for in our lives that we hope that we have, that our children have? Safety, comfort, satisfaction. And yet everything that we try in life on, in this earth fails that miserably, never actually satisfies. And yet what Jesus promises here, are blessed are the poor in spirit for they shall have the kingdom of heaven, safety. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be satisfied, satisfaction. Blessed are those who hunger or comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He offers it eternally to your soul, the only thing that we will ever need despite circumstances. Kingdom blessings are different than, kingdom, than worldly blessings, but they're better. Way better. Okay, so counterintuitive, also countercultural. From the time that we were in elementary school, we've been told certain things. Make as much as you can so that you can provide a good living for yourself. Don't let the world see your weaknesses. If you want something, go get it. And eat, drink, be merry. And yet what Jesus says is blessed are the poor. Let the world see your mourning. Blessed are the meek and hunger for my righteousness. Totally different. Because blessedness in the kingdom is the opposite of blessedness in the world. We cannot look like the world and say we're of the kingdom. Because they're different. Completely opposed to one another. And so as we're going through this, we're looking at our grid again. Encouragement, holiness, repentance. 
man, I don't see hunger and thirst in my life all the time, but I do, I do see it. I do see it some, and I feel in my innermost desire that God is cultivating poverty and spirit, and I can see that, so I'm encouraged by that. And for us, what are we encouraged by? Holiness, what are the things that just like, man, pierce, like, man, the word just spoke to me there, the spirit's working, I need to work on this. Or, man, I've never felt any of this, I've never been poor in spirit. Then I would direct you to the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So important. The most important thing that we could answer. With that in mind, that's the end of our first point, blessed before God. We're going to move to our second point, blessed before man. So there's a heart posture towards God, but there's also a heart posture that kingdom citizenship will lead to towards fellow human beings. And we see those in the next four Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So we're going to go through the first three and then really hone in on the last one. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. When I tell my wife I'm going to clean the apartment, she comes home four hours later, and I'm still napping. She deserves to punish me. (laughs) And yet, by her mercy, she does not. Mercy is not punishing something that deserves to be punished. But here's the thing, is that we, the reason my wife can do that, and on much larger scales, the reason that we can get over bitterness and forgive be merciful is because we've been given such a great mercy that does not even compare. And that's through Jesus. Reverse engineer this beatitude for a minute. You have received mercy, therefore be merciful. We can be merciful. Church, are we a people harboring bitterness towards others? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, The best way I've heard this explained is when you talk to somebody and your eyes are going every other way except for that person, you know that they're not actually listening to you, right? They're just hopping around the room. We do that to God so much. God, when I need you, I'll talk to you, and I'm going to be everywhere else distracted. The pure in heart means that we eliminate distractions, and we want to focus wholly on God. Here's the beauty of it. Look at the promise. For they shall see God. As we fix our gaze on him, he will actually reveal more of himself to us. Are we a people that are pure in heart, that desire to be unwaveringly focused on God? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. To make peace is not just to like avoid conflict, but actually to go into those who are persecuting you and bless them so that peace would be made. Look at Jesus. If he just left us, we're done forever. But he pursued us and blessed us on the cross by giving us his life so that we could be called sons of God. Look at the beatitude, for they shall be called sons of God. We can make peace because peace has been made with us when we did not deserve it in any way. So the first three, here's the last one we're going to focus on because it's repeated twice. So I think Matthew thinks it's important to record that Jesus said this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are the persecuted. Two things I want to point out before we really get into this is that it says, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and it says, blessed are you when others revile you on my account. Being a jerk, being rude, and people don't like you because of it does not mean you're doing the Lord's work. Not what it means. I got kicked out of Taco Bell because I chewed out the cashier for not giving me a mild sauce. Hashtag blessed. Not... Not what we're doing. 
That's not what this means. Persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus said that the world will hate you because it hated me first. So that as we desire him more, the world will think differently of you to the point where persecution comes because the world will hate anything that looks like Jesus because they hated him. That's why they killed him. Because he's so different. He's so holy. It's different. That's why persecution comes, for righteousness' sake. Second thing, notice that it says the exact same promise as the first beatitude. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what this does is it eliminates the idea that there's tiers of Christians, of poor in spirit, and then once I reach level eight, I'll be persecuted. So like I'm getting there. But it flattens it all out, saying that if you've been a Christian for 30 years, we're still desiring to be poor in spirit to come open-handed to the cross. And if you've been a Christian for two weeks, he's saying that your life should look, in a smaller fashion, different from the world. So it doesn't doesn't make levels, it flattens it out. So that's important to know. So let's talk about persecution specifically and what that looks like. Here's a few examples. In the Middle East, our partners overseas, there's a guy there who is studying to be a religious leader in the mosques. In their culture, prestigious, powerful, influential, the best job you could have, and yet he hears about this Jesus Christ who isn't just some heavenly gatekeeper who wants you to do good things, but he actually came and saved the lost by dying on the cross, and he put his faith in Jesus. And I asked him, what do his parents think? And with tears welling up in his eyes, he said, if my parents figured out, they would take me up into the mountains and shoot me in the back of the head because it's illegal to convert from Muslim to Christian, and it would prevent shame from falling upon our family. That's persecution. Pray for our brothers in the Middle East, in Berlin. Um, But that's not what we experience here. So what is persecution? We can't just say, well, we're not being shot at, so we're not getting persecuted. What about the stay-at-home parent that is judged by neighbors because he or she keeps asking, you know, how can we pray for you as a family? You're at school and you want to pray before you eat your meal to give reverence to God, and people just think you're some weirdo. Persecution. What happens when we're at college and we keep telling our classmates about Jesus? We keep telling them we want them in a community, keep inviting people to church, and they start, I guarantee if you're in college and you don't live life like a stereotypical college student, people will not hang out with you, and they'll think you're weird. Persecution. Look different from the world. Or we're in our jobs physically sharing the gospel with people, and you're the Jesus weirdo that wants people to be saved. Persecution. But with that in mind, here's what persecution is not. This text shatters the idea that we can just be nice people and we're evangelizing. That we can just show God's love by being nice people and that'll actually get people to the point where they won't persecute you. This is showing us, look at the text. Verse 11 says that they will persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Nobody does that to nice people. I hate when they serve at the soup kitchen and give money. It doesn't happen. Nobody gets mad at nice people. It's physically the gospel message being proclaimed that will receive persecution. Look at the, look at the next thing. It says, blessed because the prophets who were before you were persecuted. Ten of the eleven apostles were martyred, torn to shreds, boiled alive, crucified upside down drowned in their own blood. And it wasn't because they were nice people. 
Our partners overseas are not being persecuted. Our brothers and sisters overseas are not being persecuted because they're nice people. But because living in the kingdom means that we have a message that can save the gospel of Jesus Christ, that all who put their faith in Jesus alone will enter the kingdom of heaven. And that message is diametrically opposed from the message of the world. And so persecution does not come from us just being good. But it comes from the gospel message being proclaimed. As I was um, reading through these and studying over the last couple weeks, Honestly, more than anything else, this burdened my own soul because I'm not even 1% of what I should be when it lines up to this. That I don't think of myself as being poor in spirit. I think way too much of myself. I don't hunger for Christ like I should, like his righteousness. Not pure in heart, I'm distracted. I'm not any of these things. And so, um, to the extent that I should be. And so, it burdened me. Like, I was heavily burdened for my own soul studying this. And so I did what any grown man does when he wants comfort. I tried to pet my corgi, Beans. <laughs> and Beans was across the room. And I was sitting on the floor. I said, come here, Beans. And I reached my hand out. Come on, Beans. And he gets up. And I, oh, stupid dog. I hate this. So my hand is reached out. And Beans walks from across the room, gets right here, like almost gets a grin on his face, and lays down. Just out of reach. Just, and so I got to do that thing to pet him, right? And then, so I hate when Beans does that. But I'm not even kidding. This is not a joke. I'm not, I'm not like making this up. In that moment, I realized that that's what I think that Jesus does to me. That he comes from across the room and he'll come just out of reach. And all I got to do is one more of these to grab him. But that's such a lie, because if I'm poor in spirit, I'll never even be able to grab it. Jesus comes 100% of the way, 100%, and he met me there, and I, was, I felt poor in spirit because I can't even get there, and he came all the way for me, and then he comforted me, and he gave me a hunger for his word, to know him more, to have more of his spirit. He is, and he showed me what it looks like to be meek or merciful or peaceful. And he showed me the ways in my life that I look too much like the world, and that's why I'm not being persecuted. The application for today is not that we would go and be more merciful people, more peaceful people, but that we would look at the one who is perfectly merciful and perfectly peaceful. Because when we encounter him, our lives will change. The blessedness in the kingdom is the opposite of blessedness in the world. They cannot be the same. We cannot say we're one and live like the other. Not because of some legalist thing where we earn it, but because if our identity has been made new and our heart has been regenerated by the God who spoke life into existence, it will change us. I want to end with this. Raise your hand if you think that I would look different if I got mauled by a bear. Okay, so everybody. Why? Because you can't get mauled by a bear and not look different. Right? Uh, affirmation? Okay. <laughs> Why is it that we think that we can encounter the God 
of the universe and not look different. Let's pray.